Lord, we are so grateful that our Savior loves us so dearly and has given us His Word that we might be instructed and has given us the Spirit that we might have eyes to see and ears to hear. And so, Lord, this morning, would You open our eyes and open our ears to hear what our very Savior says to His people and bids us come and know that there we find room at the table. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you'd open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2, we'll be looking at verses 13 through 16. I want to say to you before I begin reading this that this is not an easy passage. And if you were to look at as many commentaries and books as I've looked at over this past week, and if you had called as many pastors as I have called, old pastors, young pastors, people still in seminary, to talk about what they might think about this passage, um, it has been a great blessing and a great privilege to talk about this. This is a challenging passage, not because it's so much hard to understand. That's not why it's difficult. It's difficult because it's challenging to so many paradigms that many Christians want to hold. It's challenging. And it forces us to think and realize how really significant the coming of Christ is and how profound it is that He has made a new humanity from what was lost So, let's read this passage together, beginning in verse 13. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances, that He might create in Himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Amen. If you remember last week, we looked, and the thing that we have been considering in this passage is this that not only is Jesus speaking to Gentiles about their helpless condition back in the beginning of chapter 2, but He now is turned to talk about their hopeless condition. But in both cases, if you remember back in those previous verses in chapter 2, that Paul did not leave the Jews out of the equation. He said, oh yes, you were the people who were lost. You were, the Gentiles were people who were lost and outside, but we Jews too. We're lost, even though we had the promises of God. We still needed redemption. We still needed the ultimate reality of Christ, that what we had under Moses was not sufficient. It did not accomplish God's ultimate purpose of salvation. And so here, he continues to unfold that. He continues to bring us into a furtherance of that understanding. And it is with that understanding that we have to read this passage. 
Paul is very serious. Christ is very serious about the fact that he has brought us to a new place. We have to see that. We have to understand that. And we have to begin to comprehend this. And if you remember that word, remember, what Christ through Paul is calling us to do is to remember these things. That was not an option. If you remember, I told you that remember in this chapter is actually an imperative. You must remember these things. It's imperative that you do. You can't just say, well, I heard that one time. It was a nice idea. It was a helpful information way back when. It brought me to the Lord. It got me saved. And now we're moving on to bigger and better things. As Sinclair Ferguson says in his wonderful book, The Christian Life, those are the important things. And see, sometimes in the Christian life, we don't believe that. We believe what's really important is, well, but what are you doing? And what this passage is trying to say to you is you're never going to do anything rightly until you understand who you are and know who you are and comprehend who you are. And that's what compels you to live as who you are. An easy way to remember this is Frank Sinatra's way was do be, do be, do, right? I do what I want to do and that's what I be. The problem is, is that too many Christians do the same thing. What Scripture confounds us with is this. It's be, which you can't make yourself. Only Christ can make you something that you're not. Know it, and then do it. Now, I pretty much have just told you the whole sermon. We're about to unpack what I just said. But that really is the nuts and bolts of what's being said here. Paul is basically reminding us that the first three chapters, you've got to get clear in your mind if you're going to hear what he's got to say in 4, 5, and 6. Because he's going to start to say, do this, do that. Remember this. Remember you've got a new language. You've got a new way of acting. You need to have a new attitude about people. And so he's saying, this is why. This is why you should have all those things. This is why your life should look differently and be differently. And so we must understand that reality first. So, remember as we think through this. The first point I want us to look at then is the peace of the new humanity. If we look at this passage then, look at what it tells us. It says that Christ Himself is our peace. I don't want you just to think about that in some obscure way. I want you to take it really tangibly. There is a, What Paul is saying to us is that Jesus in His very person is peace. To be united with Him, to be connected to Him, is to be a recipient in peace. Now, is it totality of peace yet? No. We continue to wrestle in this now and not yet reality. We now are in the heavenlies and yet we're still here. We now are seated with Christ, but now we're, yet we're still here. We are glorified according to Romans 8. He's justified us, glorified us. All these things are true and yet we still await those things in some measure. We are constantly caught as people who are in between. Now and not yet. But the point is, is that the reality of peace has broken in to a world at war at war with itself, at war with nature, at war with God, at war. 
And it should not surprise us that we live in a world that is constantly at war. It should not surprise us that diseases run rampant and are at war with our bodies. This is a reality of living in a fallen world. And rest assured, our world is fallen. And so as we come to those terms, we need to understand that Christ breaks in and says there's real peace to be had, peace of conscience, peace to understand life in a different way so that you are not worried and fretting, which is a sin and which plagues, quite frankly, far too many Christians. I can't tell you how many people I constantly talk to that tell me I'm worried about this and I'm worried about that and I'm fretting about this and I'm fretting about that. They may never use those words because, of course, they know the Bible says you're not supposed to worry and you're not supposed to fret, but that's what they do. They're fretting and they're worrying. They cannot comprehend how these things are going to work themselves out as if somehow God is not God, as if somehow Christ is not the maker and keeper of all His covenant promises. As if somehow restoration is just a figment of, of the Bible's imagination. See, the reality is that these things are breaking in. And I want to say this to you as gently as I can, but somehow we really do need to be people who long for heavenly glory. And I think sometimes we become so weighed down with health and wealth and prosperity and personal well-being in this life that we forget that this is not what we're living for. I'm not living for America to be the greatest nation on the planet. I'd like it to be safe. I'd like my family to grow up. I'd like to believe that my great-grandchildren and my great-great-grandchildren will have some of the privileges that I've had. But that's not my great hope. I am a citizen of heaven. And heaven is my home. And when you get around a lot of God's people, you never know that that's really how they believe. That is the peace which Christ brings, which says, if God calls me to die today, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And that is better. And if He calls me to stay, then He calls me to serve him in loving him well and in loving my neighbor and fitting and preparing myself for the heavenly glory to which I will one day be called to. And that is what should enrapture us as God's people. That's what should give us hope when we see despairing things around us. That's the truth of the Bible. And that's why we can really say Christ is the sphere of peace. To be in Christ is to be at peace. To be in Christ is to have some measure of knowledge that I really am forgiven. I really am okay. I really am going to make it to the end because Christ is with me. And if Christ is for me, if the triune God is for me, who can be against me? Angels? Principalities? Nations? Inflation? The price of oil? Health care. Look at all these things we, we say, Hero Israel is your God. It's health care. It's the price of oil. I'm not suggesting that we should not be involved in that as God's people. I am suggesting that it should not rule us. 
it should not be the determining factor of how I feel today. Because just to let you know, kind of just on the price of oil thing, I have friends of mine that are greatly in debt because of the big crash that happened many, many years ago in Dallas and Houston. I mean, they're millions, they've been millions of dollars in debt. They lived with millions of dollars, and when the market fell in oil back in the 70s, for those of you that can remember all the way back then, they lost everything. And you know what's happened since oil has started to go back up? They're paying off their debt. They're believers, just like we are. They love Jesus, just like we do. They need to be out of debt, just like some of us do. And the means by which they do it is the oil business. And so see, while you're lamenting over here, some of your brothers and sisters are benefiting over there. And vice versa. And see, we need to keep a better perspective on what's really going on in our world instead of being driven all about me. It's what is God doing. It's what is God doing in our world. How is He calling us to think and live responsibly, ethically, morally? Now, as we look at this whole passage then, this whole notion of peace, Paul starts to bring us into this and, and begins to say that death is the means by which peace has been brought about. Christ's death has put an end, Paul tells us, to old shadows and drives us to new reality. Sinclair Ferguson goes this far and says this, Christ is the fulfillment of circumcision. He is the fulfillment of Torah. He is the fulfillment of sacrifice. He is the fulfillment of temple. And you can see every one of those truths poured out in the New Testament. John 2, he was speaking of his body. And after he was raised from the dead, they remembered that he said it because his body was the temple. So you start to see how this theology begins to run into Paul's mind. He's already dealt with the whole understanding of circumcision. So through Christ's death, then, he unites them into one body. He breaks down the dividing wall of separation. He creates them into a new man and reconciles them to God with whom they were at enmity. That's a pretty powerful stuff. That's a pretty amazing stuff that he's doing. So let's begin to look then at this uniting of the new humanity. Here's what Paul says. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances. So Christ unites us by doing something. And what Paul tells us he does is he stops the hostility that was between the people primarily talking about Jews and Gentiles, by breaking down this wall of the law and its ordinances. What does he mean by that? I mean, that could go in a million different directions, and certainly Christians have gone in a million different directions with this understanding. Well, Paul sees that the uniting of the whole of humanity is the pivotal point in redemptive history. See, that helps us. If we start to understand that somehow that all of human history since the fall has been looking forward to the uniting of Jew and Gentile, that begins to help us then. Because somehow God has to have been working out through thousands of years this goal of bringing the two into one. That, that's part of the plan. And so what we need to then understand is what has been the plan all along. Paul wants us to understand that this is a key to the gospel. If we want to understand the gospel rightly, we have to understand this correctly. So here's the basic understanding. Paul sees two basic epochs, if you will, epochs of God's dealing with humanity. The first one was with Adam. And what did God do with Adam? God placed him in a garden. God placed him there, provided him with a suitable helpmeet, 
gave him everything he could possibly want and said, be fruitful and multiply and spread my glory throughout the earth. That's your job. Get busy. Do this and you will live. And if you don't do this, what will happen to you? You will die. So the mantra of the covenant God makes with Adam is, do this and you will live. Adam failed. That's the bottom line. Adam failed. And because Adam failed to keep the covenant of works, humanity was plunged, as our confession tells us, into a state, into an estate of sin and misery. Now, because God is never caught off guard, we have to know that God knew Adam would fail. And God had a means of bringing salvation to his people. And so what did he begin to do? Well, that's exactly what we have to remember. God began to work out. That's why we have an Old Testament. That's why we love the Old Testament. That's why we read the Old Testament. That's why we use it. Because it begins to lay out in detail how God set about to redeem for himself a people. So the rest of the Old Testament then becomes this great march towards what God is going to do. In Noah, what did he do? He purified the earth. He made a new creation and reestablished Noah and said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The problem is that there are some things that aren't going to operate the way they would have operated under Adam. Number one, you're not Adam. So you're living under the curse. And you need to recognize that there are certain things that are going to go on. God calls out Abraham. And what does he do? He makes promises to him that he'll send forth a seed that will bless the whole earth. 430 years later, he calls out a people and establishes them as the nation of Israel under the Mosaic Covenant. And it's at that point that we begin to see now what Paul is after. That Mosaic Covenant was a scaffolding to basically set about and mark out a peculiar people until Christ came. But that's the whole point, isn't it? The scaffolding that was set up was not a scaffolding forever. It was a temporary scaffolding. And the writer of Hebrews spends the whole book of Hebrews saying, that scaffolding is put away. Don't go back to the old scaffolding. There's a better Savior. There's a better priest. There's a better Word. Everything's better in Christ. Don't go back. Don't run back. Don't keep going back to what you once had. That all was looking forward to this. What's in Christ? And so, if we begin to look at that then, what we see is, is that he basically says, the world is set up under two perspectives. The old Adam and the new Adam. The first man and the last man. Because if Adam had obeyed, everything was good for his posterity. And so in Christ, because Christ has obeyed and paid the penalty, everything's good for his posterity. See, that's the gospel. And that's very hard for humanity to deal with. Because our first inclination is, do. Why? Because we were created for a covenant which says, do this and you will live. We failed. And if you doubt this is what Paul is saying, go to Acts 15. What does Peter say? Brothers, how can we bring these Gentiles back underneath the scaffolding that we ourselves have not been able to live up underneath? Because... The basic quote of the Mosaic Covenant was this, do this and you will live. 
Don't and you will die. In some real sense, the covenant of works made with Adam was reinserted into Moses. Why? Paul tells you this in Galatians, to be a tutor. To keep the people in check until the time that Christ would come. All of it was pointing to Christ. All of it. Now, there is much more, and I don't have time to go into every jot and tittle, and some of you are very well read, and you're going to think, what about this, what about this, what about this? Don't go all those places. Just hear this. Just listen to this part right now. Because that's what Paul's talking about right now, is that Christ fulfills the covenant of works. Christ obeys perfectly. And because of that, the types and shadows that were rampant through the Mosaic Covenant are fulfilled. Everything. The writer of Hebrews goes to great extent to say the temple and all its furniture and all these things pointed to whom? Christ, the temple. All these sacrifices, all pointed. They weren't sufficient. They couldn't do anything for the people as far as clearing them from a guilty conscience. But they were driving them to one point, And that was what? Salvation is of the Lord. And it is seen in the person and work of Christ. Therefore, no more sacrifices. No need to build a temple structure because God is building His own temple. It is the body of Christ. We need to understand this. And I know for some of you, you're going, Preacher, that's just a lot. I'm with you. It is a lot. And I've been spending the whole week trying to distill it. So kind of keep that in mind, too. We're trying to get it down to the nuts and bolts. The bottom line of all this, then, is this. Israel represented God's election. This is the easy way for you to remember this. God basically set apart the people of Israel coming out of Egypt to represent the fact that he had elected people. Was everybody in Israel in the Old Testament elect? No. Many of them fell in the wilderness, and many of them fell along the way. But they as a collective group represented election. These are the people of God. And what did the Gentiles represent? They represented judgment. Now, was every Gentile unsaved? Did ever, will we not see any Gentiles prior to Jesus in heaven? Well, of course we will. We have records of people of the Old Testament professing faith, coming in under the scaffolding that was available to them and confessing God as their God. A very real person is Ruth, who leaves the gods of the Moabites and says, your God will be my God, your people will be my people. Your land will be my land. Rahab. How would you like to go through life being known as Rahab the harlot? And yet Rahab, a Gentile, declares her fidelity to God and her family is saved. We have all types of records of people in the Old Testament coming to faith in Christ or coming to faith in the promises which pointed to Christ. But they did not yet have the substance. They had the shadows. They had the types that were pointing them on. Trust the Lord. Real salvation is coming. Trust the Lord. Real salvation is coming. And so Paul is striving to say that what's imperative for us in understanding the uniting of these two people is that that real salvation has in fact come. Because both Jews and Gentiles needed this. As I've already said, they both needed redemption. And that's been Paul's whole point. If you were in... Israel, or you're out of Israel, you both need redemption. And there is no redemption apart from Christ. 
There is no redemption apart from the spilling of blood. There is no redemption apart from the curse being removed. And the only way the curse could be removed is for someone to obey perfectly God's commands. And that's exactly what Christ did. So, Christ now says to you, do because you live. That's what he says. Do because you live. I've done it. Now you do it. See, you are the people of God. You are the new humanity in me. You are. So now you're compelled to live. Now you're compelled to move forward in gospel grace. The second point that I want us to look at is that what we're told here in this passage is not only did he abolish those things that he might create, but he did it so that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. So the idea is he, he creates, he might create in himself one new man, one new humanity. Christ does not see Gentiles becoming Jews in the old covenant sense, nor does he see Jews tacking Jesus onto their Judaism. And we see examples of this all over the place. We are not called as God's people to go back to the Jewish way of doing things in the Old Testament. We're called to live as the New Testament people. And Jews aren't supposed to just take Jesus on and tack him on to all their rituals. We're called into the new people of God. It's why we have new sacraments. We don't have old sacraments. We don't celebrate Passover. We don't celebrate circumcision. We have baptism and the Lord's Supper. New signs and seals. Because we're a new people. And they're bloodless signs because the blood's already been spilt. Payment has already been made. We live this side of being recipients of God's mercy and grace. Paul is saying exactly what the writer of Hebrews is saying. You have been brought into the real deal. The thing all this pointed to. You are now something new and better in Christ. Don't run back to the old ways. Don't go back. You're being called forward. The earlier Christians were sometimes referred to as a third race of men. And I think that's fascinating. That other people would look at the, at the Christian church and say, well, they're, they're not part of Rome, and they're not part of Israel. They're like a third race of people. They don't fit in. They really don't fit in with the Jews, and they really don't fit in with the Gentiles because they've all merged together into one new man. And men and women, that's exactly what we're supposed to look like. It's good when our churches are full of people from different places in life, ethnically, socioeconomically, and whatever other perspective you want to throw in there. It's good because it's a testimony to the fact that the new humanity exists, that the divisions of hostility have been broken down. We need to come to terms with the fact that exactly what this passage says, we have become one in Christ. We are truly one. Now the third thing I want us to look at then is the reconciling of the new humanity. The point here is not that Jesus first had to reconcile. Some people think that, well, so what Paul's saying is Jesus had to reconcile first Jews and Gentiles together and then he could reconcile them with God. Well, that's not at all what this passage is trying to lay out. What it's really saying is taking almost 
the lesser to the greater. There needed to be real reconciliation between humanity, and Paul's been addressing the fact that the Gentiles were outside of all the promises of, of God and all the various things of God. And so he addresses that first. This is what Christ has done. But here's the big picture. The big picture is, is that he has reconciled you to God. And see, this is where humanity today is frustrated, men and women. This is why one more peace between Lebanon and Israel, between Hezbollah and any other group of people, it doesn't matter where the peace is, getting peace in Northern Ireland, getting peace in the Balkans, getting peace in Russia, getting peace in North and South Korea, all of it fails in human terms. That's why we've had so many peace treaties, and we keep signing peace treaties, because ultimately they are all done apart from God. See, man can visualize world peace till he's blue in the face. It will never happen apart from Christ. It is, as one of my favorite bumper stickers says, not visualize world peace. It says visualize world peace. Because that's really what that is kind of visualizing. Because we will not bring about real lasting peace in this world until Christ returns. It will not happen. That doesn't mean we shouldn't strive for it. It doesn't mean we shouldn't be peacemakers. It doesn't mean we shouldn't strive to see some measure of peace in these various places. We ought to. But we ought never to put our hope. We ought never to rest thinking that somehow, finally, this treaty is the treaty to end all treaties. Because what Paul's really saying is the real need was reconciliation between us and Christ. What it really is getting at is that Jews and Gentiles merged together actually are a testimony to the fact that we really are reconciled to God. See, our ability to be reconciled to one another is a testimony of our being reconciled to God. Christ, in freeing us from the covenant of works by meeting the demands and fulfilling the shadows and types of the Mosaic covenant, brings about reconciliation with God. In the language that Paul uses here, a flesh, of body, of blood, the cross, death, all suggest that in Christ's death, real justification takes place. It really does. We really are justified. God did not set aside or somehow suspend the law's demands. He fulfills them. God doesn't merely wink at it and pardon us and say, well, you know, you're, you're weak, frail human beings. We're going, to give, we're, going to give you, we're going to give you a pass on this one. No, he really paid the penalty for our sins. See, if we don't really believe that, if we don't really believe that somehow Christ did this, then, then what's all the hoopla about to tell us die on the cross, which means it is finished? What's finished? If we're still operating under the same administration that the Old Testament operated under, what was finished? What was really accomplished? See, what we're being told is, it is finished. What was being looked for has been accomplished. And we are to live in light of it. Paul's demands, Paul points us to the fact that man's need for salvation it's, and the law's demand has been achieved. The goals of salvation are achieved. And all this is done in the person and work of Christ. This is 
gospel glory. That's the glory of the gospel. Christ has really done it all. And we need to believe that. In conclusion then, Paul really wants us to see the pervasive reality of being at peace with God as the new humanity. We really are a new humanity. And we need to believe that. Old things have passed away. New things have come. Live in the new. This may seem too easy, but Paul is driving you and I to realize that that part of true obedience, if you really want to be obedient to God, then do this. Remember what Christ has done. That's why the New Testament was written. Do you see what Christ has done? Do you believe what Christ has done? Do you live in light of what Christ has done? Do you? That's the whole point. So if we don't live that way, if we don't believe these things, if these things don't somehow transform us and change us, what's the point? If we're not any different today as the people of God than we were when we weren't the people of God, why all the hubbub? I continue to say, let's buy a keg, put it on the back of a a golf cart, and go play golf until we die. It's pointless. It's foolish. It's a waste of time. Christ really has done what was required, and we need to believe it. It needs to take root in our hearts, and people need to see it as we walk around day to day. They need to feel it as they watch us care for them. They need to know it as we speak, our vocabulary. All the things about us are different because we're God's people. And that's why Paul is going to begin to say, talk different, look different, think different, act different. Why? Because Christ has done everything necessary for you to be new. Be new. This becomes the seedbed for the reversal of the Tower of Babel, men and women. Racism, sexism, classism, elitism, and you add any other ism you want to, Christ comes and blows it up. There is neither Jew nor Gentile. There is neither barbarian and Scythian. There is neither male and female. We are all one in Christ. That doesn't mean women quit being women or men quit being men. It is to say that we are all one. We all stand in union with Christ, which makes us all a part of the new humanity. This helps give us wisdom in understanding various social and political issues. And it reminds us, as I've already said before, we are citizens of heaven first. That takes first place in what I, decisions I make. And I'll give you a very tacit example. I cannot tell you how many people I talk to all the time who move to a city because of a job before they ever go and check out a church. And then they write back and say, does anybody know of a church within any geographic region around where I'm now working? See, what ought to first take place in our minds is, where are the people of God that I might fellowship with? then I'll make a decision on whether that job is in my family in my best interest. We have to. We have to think this way because our first priority is heaven. Most important for all is for us to remember Christ. Isn't that the whole point that Paul is writing? I didn't tell you at the very beginning, but I'll now conclude with this so you see how important this is. Up until this point in Ephesians, God has been the major actor in Ephesians, at this juncture, at these verses, it's not what God has done. It's what Christ has done. 
Everything in here is about Christ and what He has done and how He has accomplished it and He has brought us into the new humanity. May God make us able to live and love and die well because we are a part of the people of God. Amen. If our deacons would come forward this morning, we'll receive our tithes and offerings, and we will sing together, We Are God's People.